So welcome, Mercy House. Um, really glad to be worshiping with you. Also welcome maybe folks that have come on the stream for the first time. Maybe uh, you saw a post uh, by your friend and you just decided to click and uh, come and be a part. And so we're just grateful to have you. Uh, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of in the middle of your Bible, so you can be turning to that, finding it on your phone. Uh, we've been talking about the kind of two parts of Ecclesiastes. So you have Solomon reflecting on life under the sun, which is his phrase for talking about life uh, that you can observe. And uh, he, as he makes those observations, he always comes to the same conclusion, uh, that, that, the, uh, that, that life uh, is meaningless, or hevel is uh, the Hebrew word there. And so this idea that, that uh, it's, it's vain, that it's fleeting, that it, uh, it can't be grasped. But then he'll shift over and he'll talk about life under heaven. And what we find out uh, is that his observations always lead to the same conclusion, that there is a good and sovereign God and that we can receive the good things in this life as a, as a gift uh, from the good and sovereign God. Um, the way that it's communicated is, is very Eastern. It's not at all uh, like a Western style of communication. Western style of communication is more... Um, you know, you tell them what you're going to say, then you make three points to support your thesis statement, and then you have a concluding statement where you restate what you said you were going to say. Um, Eastern is a little more nuanced, uh, complex, uh, creative even, and definitely Ecclesiastes, and honestly really most of the Bible is more of an Eastern style of uh, communication. Uh, Jesus himself uh, really uh, used more of an Eastern style of communication. So one of the ways we, we might think of the book of Ecclesiastes is, is like uh, a hiking trail. So we actually took a, a hike yesterday with some of the men of Mercy House. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous day. We did the Seven Sisters hike. The first time you take that hike, uh, you're, you're kind of concerned that you're going to get lost. So you, you, you're more focused on, am I on the hike? Am I on the right trail? You're watching the trail markers. Maybe you see a few of the vistas, but, but you don't really get to see everything that, that's there. And then the next time you take the hike, you kind of have a sense of where the trail is, and you're not so worried about getting lost. And then, and then you're able to see some more of the vegetation, rock formations, uh, some of the, the, the beauty. And so Ecclesiastes is, is somewhat like this, where Solomon will cover a topic and, and then he'll circle back around, he'll take you on the hike again, and he'll take you to that topic yet again. This is similar to, the to what we're doing with this text today in chapter 4. Uh, we're circling back to uh, the topic of work. Now, he's already talked about work. Again, he, he's taken us on this hike before where we've seen the topic of work. If you remember, back in Ecclesiastes 2, uh, verse 18 says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So that's what he's already said about work. And, he, and, and he's, he, he made kind of two uh, observations about work. Uh, one, that work is toil and that work is wasted. So work is toil. Uh, he, he, he's pointing to the reality that if you, you put 100% of effort in, you don't get 100% of fruit 
out of that effort. And so this has been the case of work since Genesis 3, since the fall of humanity, uh, where the fruitfulness that you're getting from your work does, does not equal the amount of effort that you're uh, putting in. But also that work is wasted, that, that let's say you, you do a lot of toiling, you produce a lot of fruit from your work, and then you hand it off to your kids. And your kids might be fools and just totally squander all of the fruit of your work. Or maybe you have wise kids. Well, then they'll hand it off to your grandchildren, and they'll probably be foolish. Or eventually some fool will get a hold of your wealth and will squander it. Uh, and this gives, gives him up to despair. He says he gives his heart up uh, to despair. So it's kind of it's surprising that he then circled back, back, circles back around to, to the concept of work and toil. Um, but he does, and he gives us some more insight into this nature of work uh, under the sun. So in this deeper reflection, he's going to go deeper into why our work tends toward toil. Uh, and then he's going to go into what you should not do about that, and then what you should do about that. So this is, this is the, the, the sermon uh, points here. Why does work tend toward toil? What shouldn't we do? And what should we do? So why does it tend toward, toward toil? So um, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 4 says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the win. Now, why is work toil? Again, we, we, we said earlier, because you don't get what you put in, uh, that it's wasted, the fruit of it is wasted. And here he, he drills down deeper into more the psychology of work, the why behind the work. And he says the why behind the work is envy of your neighbor. So what's envy of your, your neighbor? So it's more than just my neighbor has something I don't have and I want it. But it's the experience of an intense displeasure, even hatred, that my neighbor has something that I don't have. Sometimes we might call this jealousy, jealous of, of something that, that, that someone has. But it's a very intense emotion. It, it might be the emotion behind being uh, covet, covetous, right? Um, and so he says, this is what is driving this toilsome labor. Uh, under the sun. Now we might ask ourselves this question: uh, You know, do do we do that? Well, of course we do. Of course we do. I mean, think about this. I mean, how many of you expect to own a car, whether you have a car or not? Do you expect to own a car? I think most people who live in the U.S. are like, yeah, yeah. I expect if I don't have one now, I expect I'm going to have one. And then, do you expect for that car to be low mileage, like pretty nice car, a dependable car, right? Yet most. Most people do. Or, or do you expect to own a house? Whether you own a house or don't own a house, do you expect to own one at some point? And are you expecting that that house is going to be, you know, two or three, maybe four bedrooms, right? And, and I think most of us are like, yeah, I do. I, do. I kind of expect that. Or do we expect to have enough resources to travel, to like go to other countries even, and to, to travel and to experience it? I think most of us in the U.S. were like, yeah, I kind of expect that, that I will have that kind of standard of living and be able to do those kinds uh, of things. And, and how many of us feel displeasure when we can't do those things and we see other people getting to do those things? <laughs> and I, again, I think most of us would say, oh, yeah, actually, 
that's true. I see somebody else doing these things or having these things and I don't have them. And it's not just I want them or I think I need them, but I, I have an experience of displeasure, perhaps even hatred regarding the person that, that has these things. And, and you, again, you, you, you may say, well, I, I just want those things. It, it's, not, it's not really envy. I, I, just, I just want these things. I, I think maybe a, a, a way to, to drill a little deeper in there is, is to say, well, what if you lived in Las Malvinas in the Dominican Republic? Now, this is a place that we've served as a, as a ch- uh, church several times. And, and would, would you be desiring these same things if you grew up in Las Malvinas? Now, now most people are living off about $2 a day in that community. They're living in um, one-room, two-room shacks that have tin roofs or maybe tarp roofs. What, what if you lived there? What if you born there, grew up there, lived there? Would you be getting up in the morning and saying, you know, I expect to have a low-mileage, nice car? I'm, I expect to have uh, a, a four-bedroom house. I, I pro- probably not. You wouldn't. Because your neighbor doesn't have that. Uh, now, would you have envy? Uh, yeah, you probably would, right? If you had a one-room house, you're like looking over and saying, I want a two-room house. Or, I, I want a, a tin roof instead of a, a tarp roof. But, but what would be driving that would be envy. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting uh, a home and a safe place to live and a place where you can thrive as, as human beings. Uh, n- absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, but I use that example just to help us to think about what drives us, our wants, our, our desires, things that we say are our needs. Oftentimes it's envy of our neighbor. I noticed that my um, uh, my, my perception of my own house changes with whatever neighbor I'm with. <laughs> I remember several years ago, we actually, I think we had just purchased our, our house and uh, we had just been taken out to lunch by a parent of an Amherst College student who was very successful, very rich uh, businessman. And so he'd taken us out to lunch, he paid for everything and he, he brought us home. We were riding with him and, and uh, he pulled into our driveway and he looked at, looked at our house and he said, is this your house? I was like, uh, yeah, this is this is my house. It's like, yeah, it looks like a looks like the house of, of a college pastor. And I I couldn't help but like feel shame for my house. You know, I was like, oh, my, I'm not measuring up to whatever he is perceiving is the appropriate house uh, for a human being. Now contrast that with my conversation with a couple of guys that were putting on a roof on my house uh, last week, and we're standing in the backyard. And they're like, man, we love your house. You have an am- this is an amazing place. Like, your backyard is awesome, and it's such a great location. And I'm like, yeah, like man, I'm blessed. I have this awesome house. But it, it, my feeling about the, the the house or the home that I had was was based on my neighbor, and and I w- I was kind of calibrating myself based on what my neighbor thought about what I had or what they had. And I, I was pretty sure that these guys didn't have, probably didn't own their home, probably didn't have the same kinds of home uh, that I had. And so what Solomon is getting at is that, that envy, that intense hate, hatred or displeasure uh, regarding what others have and what you don't have, that, that, can, that can drive your work. 
And when that drives your work, your work becomes hevel. It becomes meaningless. And so again, he's, tr he's drilling deeper down into the psychology of work. He's helping us understand why is it that work feels like so much toil. Now, he then goes into what you shouldn't do <laughs> in response to that reality. Uh, he says in verse 5, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, I think why he does this <clears throat> is because he knows that as, as we talk about work as toil, our temptation is to say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do hard work. I'm going to reject hard work. If it's toil, I, I, I'm not going to engage with it. Um, I don't care what my neighbor has and my neighbor doesn't have. I, I just want to get by. I want to do the least amount of work I can possibly do. I'm not going to enter into this whole toilsome labor. Thing. And, and it's almost as, you know, Solomon knows that that's going to be one of our reactions. And he's like, nope, that, that's not the response either. That you're, you're being foolish. That a fool folds his hands, right? refuses to work. And the result is he eats his own flesh. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he, he, he means that not working hard will contribute to your own demise. And we, I mean, we know this. We, we know that uh, poverty, for instance, will wreck your life. I mean, so many statistics out there that, that we hear on a, a pretty consistent basis. Uh, uh, just some t statistics from uh, uh, children from uh, poverty. Uh, it, it's pretty just uh, riveting. I, I mean, I, I can't believe some of these, right? So the, the lowest 10% uh, in income of children will have a lower IQ score by 20 points, right? just based on their income. Um, those in the poorest 10% of society will die nine years sooner than those in the top 10% of society. Those who are in the poorest 10% of society will experience 20 fewer years of good health than the top 10%. Of society, those in the poorest 10% of families will be four times more likely to have mental health problems than the top 10%. So it it wrecks your life, right? It, and and so Solomon's getting at this issue of okay, if you don't work, then you contribute to your own demise, your own poverty. Now the the, the Bible talks about the reasons for poverty in, in three ways, and the, one of those is injustice, okay, which we hear a lot about in our current uh, cultural moment. And then another is calamity. So, you know, your house gets knocked down, your crops get destroyed, you find yourself in, in poverty. Uh, but the third one is laziness. And oftentimes it's a, some kind of combination uh, of these things. And so here Solomon is only addressing laziness in regards to poverty and one's own uh, demise. And it's, it's a bit of a, a, a corrective to him saying, okay, uh, you're, you're fueled by envy, uh, and that's pushing you to toil, and then we wanted to swing back the other way and go, okay, well, forget work. I'm not going to do it. And he's like, no, that's not, that's not the proper response. We, we, we still have to do hard uh, work. So, what is the proper response? If, if, the, if the 
uh, improper response is envy and letting that drive your work and not working at all, what, what's the proper response? Well, this is verse 6, right? It says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. This is a striving after the wind, right? So he's, he's giving us this balance of one hand, <clears throat> one hand of rest and one hand of hard work. Now, this should sound familiar, this rest-work pattern. I mean, we see this pattern laid down in the created order in Genesis chapter 2. For instance, in Genesis 2 verse 1, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And we see God modeling this pattern of, of work and rest. He's created the, the, the earth, and it's described as work. God is working for six days, and he's creating um, the earth in that work. Uh, but then the seventh day, he, he rests. And, and so we see God modeling this, this rhythm. But it's interesting that this, this whole like rest idea every seventh day is not really for God. God God's not tired. God, God does not rest. He, he doesn't need to sleep or slumber. He, he never gets uh, you know, deprived of resources. Like he, he, he's totally sufficient in and of himself. But what he's doing is he's trying to show human beings the pattern of how they are to live. And this pattern is this work and rest. And so the Sabbath is for humans. Uh, Jesus says as much, right? Mark 2.27, he, Jesus, said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, uh, again, this idea of a handful of rest and a handful of hard work. Uh, this, this is the opposite of toil, right? I mean, think about this. If I can work six days and survive seven days, that, that's getting more out of my labor than I put in. And God, God is saying that because he is sovereign and he is good, that that can, that can be true. That work doesn't have to be toil. That because of his sovereign good grace, that we can work six days and we can rest seven. This was true in the created order. It's also true in the fallen state that we find ourselves in today. The, the Sabbath laws were repeated again and again and again throughout the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. You can work six days and it can survive seven. And it is the gift of a, of a sovereign good God. I mean, think about this. I, I love this about Adam and Eve's first day, really. I mean, they're, they're, they're created on the sixth day and then they wake up on the seventh day and they're like, hey, God, what, what do we do? What's on the agenda? He's like, rest. But we haven't done anything. I know. <laughs> you rest. You rest. You worship. You take the seventh day. You, 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 you enjoy the blessings that I've given you. And then out of rest, you then work. And so instead of a work six days and earn your, your rest, he says, no, you, you rest in my, my blessings. You rest in my grace. And then out of that, you do work. Now, he 
also tells them to do work, <laughs> right? He doesn't just say rest on the seventh day. Um, he then says on the, the very next day, okay, we, we got to go to work. And so in, in uh, Genesis 2.15, he says, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So here he's, he's laying down in the created order, work. And it's good. Like everything that God is giving, every, everything God is commanding is good. And so a couple of uh, truths about work. One is God is commanding them to work, right? These are part of the conditions of the relationship that, that here God has, has created them. He has blessed them. And now they're responding with obedience. And part of that obedience is to work, to work hard for six days and rest uh, for one. And so we see work as a vocation, right? It's a calling from God. This is a way to worship him, to obey him, to respond to his good gifts. Um, and it, it, it's, it's such a shift for most of us, right? Where we just, we just see, I gotta got go to work, got, I, I gotta survive, so I, you know, I don't wanna do it, and I wish I could just retire at age 25, but, but I don't, you know, I can, I gotta work. That, that is not a Christian perspective on work. Um, I've been talking a lot with my son, uh, Cooper, who just got his first real job, and which is a huge praise. <laughs> so those of you that have been praying, uh, just so, so encouraged that uh, the Lord has given him a job. And so he's working as an accounting specialist. And, um, and so he gets there his first day, and th they hand him you know, invoices that are from July. I mean, it's a stack that he's having to do data entry for, and it's really hard. <laughs> it's really toilsome. And so we're, we're talking on the phone, and, we're, you know, and I'm giving him this pep talk. I'm like, I know it's hard, I, I, but it's unto the Lord. This, this is an opportunity to work in obedience to God, in worship of God, and, and just trying to help him make that, that shift, which, which he is by God's grace. Uh, he's, he's learning uh, to do that. So one of the reasons we work, we work hard, is because God commands us to work hard. Um, but it's also a means of provision. Right? This is how you pay the bills, <laughs> is that God gives you a job. Now think about Adam and Eve. They're eating the fruit from this garden, but they're told to work and keep the garden. And so what's going to happen if they fold their hands, if they do what the fool does and they fold their hands, the garden's not going to be fruitful anymore. They're going to go to the apple tree and they're going to go, where are the apples? Well, you didn't trim the tree. You didn't fertilize the tree. You didn't do what was required to keep that apple tree fruitful. And so now you don't have any apples anymore, and you've, you've folded your hands, and you're eating your flesh. And, and so God commands us to work, and God uses work or gives us work as a means to produce uh, income, to produce wealth, uh, to pay the bills. Right? And so uh, as, we, as we consider God's perspective on work, uh, it, it's, just, it's summed up well by, by Solomon, one hand of rest and one hand of work. And it, 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 it's something that we're built for, we're designed for since creation, to have that one hand of, of rest, one hand of work. And it, it's really the opposite of the American dream in a lot of ways. Uh, it seems to me like a, the American dream for most is like I'm gonna overwork for decades and then I'm gonna overrest when I get an early retirement, 
Like, like the goal is I can stop working and I can just lie around and do nothing. That, that is absolutely not the order that God laid down in uh, creation. Uh, I was reading, uh, did, did a little bit of research on this and uh, started pulling up articles uh, on what you should do in retirement because reti if you're not careful, retirement will be your demise. Right? And uh, so one of the articles said this, make sure you don't retire from daily contact with friends and colleagues. Maintain activities like sports or traveling to keep a purposeful daily life. Uh, be creative. Keep your brain healthy by painting, gardening, or helping other people. Keep learning. Explore new subjects you've always been interested in. And I read that and I was like, why, why would they have to tell people this, right? Well, be, because our tendency is like, oh, if I could just stop working and just lie around and do nothing, fold my hands. And even if you, if you have the income, right, to, to live on that income for, for decades, it's still not good for us. We're, we're built to have one hand of rest and one hand of work. I've been really challenged and encouraged by uh, a couple of programs in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the denomination that we're a part of. And one of those is called the, the Mission Service Corps. And it's made up of mostly retired people. They, they, they've worked, they've put away enough money to live off of, and then they join this Mission Service Corps and it's basically, we'll go anywhere and serve anywhere in North America. And they're sent all over the place to serve in churches around uh, North America. Uh, another uh, program also in the de denomination is the Disaster Relief uh, Group. And they also are made up of mostly retired people. And so whenever there's any kind of a natural disaster, hurricane, fires, whatever, uh, these folks are loading up like portable kitchens and on trailers and, and taking those uh, feeding uh, kitchens to places where there's been disasters. And most of them are retired. And they're working really hard, not for an income, but they're working hard and, and doing so unto the Lord. And I, I, I just love that, right? That, that, that we're built for this. We're built to, to have one hand of rest and one hand um, of work. And this is the pattern that uh, God has laid down for us. And it's the, the, the pattern that's so important if, if we're going to keep out of experiencing work as heavy, as toil. It's taking time to rest and taking time to work hard. Um, it's interesting that God's pattern in creation uh, is very much the same as his pattern in recreation as well. Um, in recreation, what, what God is doing is he's redeeming, uh, he's reclaiming everything that's been lost in the fall, including work. And so we read in places like Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just as humanity experienced God's grace in creation and then responded to that grace with works, the same thing is true in, in, in recreation, right? We're, 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 we're responding to God um, by, by first trusting in his grace. We're resting in the grace of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And 
as we do that, we then respond with good works, right? This is the very next verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so it's this beautiful picture of uh, recreation as we rest in the work of Jesus Christ at the cross to forgive us of our sins, but not only that, to give us transforming grace to transform everything about our lives, including the way that the relationship that we have with work. And so we, we can move from either rejecting work, folding our hands like the fool, or, or move from working with, with, with just toilsome labor out of envy. We can repent of that, and we can become those who, who have one hand of rest and one hand of work, and do that by God's grace given to us um, at the cross. When we do that, our work is not vain. It's not vain. It's not heaven. It actually is, is fruitful labor for the glory of God and for our own good and for the good uh, of others. The Apostle Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Uh, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I, I can't help but think that Paul is, is thinking about Ecclesiastes in that moment where he's saying, in the Lord, in a relationship with Jesus, resting in his grace, now your labor, your work, whether that be work, the work of ministry or the work of engineering or the work of housework or the work of, of teaching children or whatever the case may be, that that work is not in vain because now that work is being done in the Lord. So how do we respond to this? What, what, what would be some ways to apply this? And, and so to think about, I think just in general, think about your relationship to work. Because all of us, we struggle with this, right? We struggle with, with tending toward toilsome labor. Um, and so first and foremost, you've you got to rest in the grace of, of God in recreation, right? The work of Christ. You must first rest in that. I mean, the most vain toil that you will ever try to do is to save yourself from your sin. And, and some of us use work to try to save ourselves from our sin. We try to make ourselves worthy, acceptable. And, and this, is, this is our functional savior. And, and we're, we're just like working, 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 believing that someday we'll, we'll be able to reach some kind of a pinnacle in our work and then we'll be acceptable, then we'll be worthy. That is heaven. That, that is toil that is going to lead to, to, to nothing but an empty, empty, bottomless pit of despair. And this is in part what Solomon is saying. And so first you must rest on the grace of Jesus Christ. That's where you get your worth. That's, that's where you get uh, be, being accepted, uh, not from uh, toiling and, and working towards some kind of a, of a, of a pinnacle. Uh, and so once, you, once you've rested in that grace, rested in that work of Jesus Christ, then you have grace not only to be forgiven of that, but to be transformed out of that. And then by that grace, we then can begin to grow in the area uh, of work. And so for some of us, we're overworking. And there may be different reasons for why we're doing that, um, but the one Solomon's pointing to in this text is 
envy. And so doing some reflection on that. Why am, I, why am I overworking? Is it because I'm looking at the culture around me and I have, I have set up expectations for myself, for my family that have been given to me, not by God, but by the culture that I live in. And I am now toilsomely laboring for that standard, which of course you'd never reach it, right? There's always a, 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 a newer, better thing that, that you, you're desiring and ending and then it, it, it causes you to, to have toilsome labor, refusing to take time off, refusing to participate in church or ministry or serving others or spending time with your family because you, you think, I have to have this particular standard of living and, and this envy is driving us. Repent from that. Confess that to the Lord. He saved you from that. And allow him to transform you out of that and to repent and to, to have this healthy relationship with, with work where you've got one hand to rest and one hand of work. Uh, for others, we, we've, we've rejected hard work. <laughs> we've, we've folded our hands. And we need to confess that that's not right either. And this, it, it may be some kind of twisted version of this, and I, I find that for some of us, we're overworking in one area and we're underworking in another area. And so just confessing that, where you've, you've been the sluggard, right? You, you've been the fool that's folding their hands, and you can see how it's contributing to your own demise. It's eating away at your finances. It's eating away at your house or your family or your relationship, whatever it is that, that you're not working hard at and, and, and that you, you confess that to the Lord. And, and again, lean on that transforming grace to grant you repentance from that and to, and to turn away from underworking and get to that place of, of one hand of rest and one hand of work. And again, the, the way that we, we are able to do this is, is because just as, as God in the garden gave the gracious gift of, of, of blessing to Adam and Eve and said, no, first rest and then work, he does the exact same thing in, in recreation where he, he blesses us with the grace of recreation through his work on the cross. And then out of that, he says, now, in response to my grace, let's work hard and let's do that for the glory of God and the good of others. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful uh, for just your grace. We see it in the garden. As, as, you, as you bless Adam and Eve, you, you put them in a garden that's already fruitful, and uh, you, you give them rest, you give them worship, and, and, and then you give them the vocation of working hard, working hard for your glory and, and for the good of, of, of ourselves and others. And so, Lord, we confess to you today, we are so easily veer from that pattern that you've laid down as, as early as in the Garden of Eden. And so we, we confess overwork, we confess underwork, um, and we pray for wisdom by your Spirit to, to, to know how uh, to have that one hand of rest and one hand of work. Lord, uh, we, we need your help, we need your wisdom. It, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more complicated than um, just a, a, a quick little sermon. So Lord, would you help us by the power of your spirit to, 
to, to understand what, what would it look like if uh, we, we rested well and we worked hard uh, for your glory. And uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.